the most powerful thing that you could do is not having to take, you know, external thing to make you feel some sort of way. It's more so you're creating this environment, you're creating these habits, you're creating this foundational lifestyle that really is conducive to performance management. So really tuning into these aspects foundationally that we have to get a hold of versus, you know, putting a large supplemental or medical band-aid on things, I think is really important. Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Curious Competitor Podcast. Welcome back. After a little bit of a break, our guest today is uh, Dr. Nicole McClellan, Dr. Cox, uh, for short, and a naturopathic doctor, a fellow member of the Designs for Sport Advisory Board out of Nova Scotia. Um, I have a few Nova Scotian friends, and they're all a ton of fun, Cox. So you, you have, uh, I, I have a tall order uh, for today's podcast. Liam O'Brien came on here another Halifax kid and, and killed it. So I'm excited to uh, sit down today and talk human performance, specifically my performance as we're working together this summer, uh, helping my off season, you know, launch. We're in the middle of it now. We'll touch a little bit on female athletics. We'll discuss the, uh, the concept of performance versus longevity, where those two mesh, where they clash. Um, and then I've really appreciated your approach for making room for human awareness and uh, understanding habit and the power of it or how to shape it uh, in our early uh, professional relationship. So Coke, thanks for coming. Thanks. No pressure. Hey, to li- live up to all those other Scotianers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially OB, um, friend of the show, uh, Arizona Coyote, tough guy, um, you know, world-class beard, uh, average, average dancer, lightweight uh, drinker at his wedding, but we'll forgive him. Can't go hard all the time, right? Well, as a Nova Scotian, that's not common to have that i understand uh, yeah the hollywood the hollywood players uh, go hard from my understanding yeah it's a uh, it's part of us i guess it's a you know you watch your parents do it and you do it too yeah i don't think side note before we get into the performance world nothing wrong with having um a, a, a healthy relationship with fun as someone who's type a uh you know very performance driven i sometimes you know struggle in that realm which is why Liam was a good friend of mine because we had this yang yin, you know, I'd kind of reel him in and, you know, he'd make me, you know, feel more playful and we were a good locker room one-two combo. Uh, we'll see if I get to play with him again. I played with him for a few years in, in Hershey uh, and was a roommate of mine before uh, we went our separate ways. No, I love that. It's so important to have those people in your life that show you the other side of things and um, yeah, it helps keep you grounded and helps keep you in perspective of all the pursuits that you're after too, right? Well, and let, let's start there because as a former optimizer of everything to the nth degree. This is a, a practice that um, I, I, I didn't necessarily understand. I didn't understand that I had this practice until I started to like bump elbows with other guys and think, oh, wow, that player does way too much. Like I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet that that player is able to do half of what they do and still have the exact same results and their quality of life would be better. I was that guy. And it wasn't until I got really close to the, that sort of example, that I started to realize like, you know, there, there's an Occam's razor approach here where simpler is, simpler is better that I am totally missing. And uh, kind of to give an example, you know, caffeine's used a lot um, as a performance enhancer when it comes to sport, right? Being able to repeat more bouts, you know, faster reaction time, whatever, you know, so might beta alanine. And let's say both of those, you know, are able to, in studies, show a 10% bump. Well, if you take them both, it doesn't mean you get a 20% bump. So, so, so what's going on here? Um, and I guess my first question is when you're onboarding an athlete, particularly of the professional type, like we're, we're not, we're no longer trying to get the athlete to work hard. Um, you know, maybe muscle mass or hypertrophy is an, an issue, maybe not, but we're really trying to 
get after nervous system development here. We're trying to upregulate their ability to, you know, to pattern recognize uh, and and withstand the the brutality of a, of a, of a long season, right? An 82 game season. If you're a pro or uh, 76, if you're in the American league, what is, what do you ask athletes most to do less of? And I asked that with the goal in mind for there to be space to then talk about what it is you fill that time with, um, or, or what's able to, to emerge from this, this freedom of energy and, and time that the athlete didn't have prior to. Yeah, I love that question. And I think it's something that is, you know, in those face-to-face conversations all of the time. And I see it pretty consistently. I mean, it's quite rare to see a parasympathetic dominant athlete. And when I say parasympathetic dominant, the visual that I give a lot of people who are new to the nervous system or learning about it would be like maybe a pro surfer. You know, they're they're super chill. They're almost asleep before the next wave hits. And and obviously that's not always the case, but that's what's portrayed in, in media of what like the, the chill surfer vibe. Whereas a lot of people are sympathetic dominant. And um, when we consider what we should mitigate or how much they're doing in the sympathetic realm is probably what I really try to get after and really try to have these conversations about. And step one is like always awareness to how many times a day or how many situations they're putting themselves in that sympathetic innervated state. And if they even have the ability to come out of it, and if they even have the ability to breathe their way into the parasympathetic parasympathetic state. So not that you can't be in, um, the sympathetic state often performance wise, we want you there, you know, in a game, if you're not in there, there's something else wrong. Or if you're not in a controlled environment throughout the game, there's something else that we have to address there. So oftentimes I think most of the conversation is bringing awareness to this hyper parasympathetic innervation or stress response. And then what do we do for you? Is this truly serving you or are we just spinning your wheels and wasting a lot of energy in that state where um, when we bring awareness to it and you can control that nervous system response and capture your breath work and all of these types of things, do we conserve a lot more energy, uh, put you in a really good headspace for the times that you do need it and give you the ability to recover and relax when you're not needing to be in that state? So let's use an example. Let's say I'm going into practice or a game or a training session. We're going to approach all of these with the same level of intensity as the athlete from a preparatory standpoint. You know, you and I both know physiologically there's some there's some variances, but I'm going into the zone. Let's call it. I'm, 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 you know, let's say I'm parasympathetic walking into the gym or the arena. There's going to be a, a warm up process, which I, you know, try to get as sympathetic as, as not as sympathetic as possible but into that, you know, a, a lot of sports psychologists will kind of use a thermometer, you know, certain athletes like to play it like 90 degrees or super wired, super hot. Other guys, you know, I would say I'm probably in the seventies. Like I, I like a, a good rev, but I play a poised game. Um, fine. You know, so that is going to go on. What strategies can I implement within that bout of intensity to, you know, continue to drag myself back down to that parasympathetic baseline? And then what does getting parasympathetic after the event look like? What are some strategies that you prefer to use? Yeah, I think during. So, you know, what keeps you in control? So you're right. There's such a variation of sympathetic dominant between an athlete and where they feel their best. And who am I to say like you being up in, you know, the higher level of that temperature range isn't necessarily where you perform at your best. We could imagine being at that range consistently day in and day out through everything that you do could start to wreak havoc on your body. But in the moment, if that's where you feel best or you perform best, 
you do your thing, right? Um, and then things that you could do if you feel like it's out of context or out of control. Uh, one of the best examples I give to my some of my MMA fighters would be, imagine you had control where that punch landed instead of just punching because you're in a ring and that's what you're supposed to do. So peripheral re- vision control, a little bit more like coordination, a little bit more... Um, Ability to really control the environment is kind of what I think about in those types of situations. And if you're way up there on that, again, temperature regulation of sympathetic overdrive and that feels good and you feel in control in that area, I mean, do your thing. But if you feel like it's a little bit nervous energy and uncontrolled and um, something that you like to work on, there's tons of stuff we can do on a nervous system response. And most of it would probably, and, and some of the most powerful stuff would be just being aware that that's happening to you um, without just continually being there, you know, in practice, in a game, in a tough conversation, in relationship status, all that sort of stuff is playing into that response. So I think step one before we do anything is just to be aware that it is a dysfunctional state or potentially a dysfunctional state and that there's wasted resources there. So that's one thing that we have a conversation about. The other thing that we have a conversation about is this perceived stress response. So stress tolerance is not just you going to the gym. It's what you ate that day. It's what you, how you slept the night before. It's uh, the conversation you had with your wife or your partner the day before. It's having kids. It's all of these things that start to play into that nervous system response. And the amplification of that could be, you know, external motivators. It might not just be the gym session itself. So always thinking about, is it an actual dysfunctional reaction or is this where you thrive? And um, again, the awareness piece is absolutely massive to that. Then afterwards, if we gear you up in a huge sympathetic response, and it's really helpful, like I love when guys redline, I think it's super important. I think it's super important for all athletes to really test their limits and abilities to push past what they perceive as possible, um, to get really uncomfortable, to do all the things that we're asking athletes to do all of the time. So I'm never saying don't get there. I'm just saying to be aware when you're there and what that actually feels like. So if you're redlining, if you're doing a crazy workout, if you get a bag skate because you guys played brutal or whatever these things look like, how do we then treat the nervous system respectfully to allow it to come back down and not gear into your next event or next exercise already really, really jacked up? And that to me would look like kind of whatever relaxes you. Like I have some patients that, you know, like paint by numbers. They like to listen to this one song that relaxes them. They have this really courteous breast breathwork routine that like really brings them into a relaxed state. Some of the research shows breathwork, certainly having your legs up against the wall, being able to like bring your heart rate back down. All these are signs that things are working well. Um, And metric wise, we have a lot of tools available to us too. So heart rate recovery, heart rate variability, all of these things might be a bird's eye view of how your nervous system is doing. If you're having a really hard time connecting to what your body and brain are doing independently. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, a couple of phrases I, I really want to touch on and highlight was this discussion around redlining and, uh, uh, an old school approach to training might be find what's difficult, you know, live in that space, stay in that space. And hopefully that, you know, cutting edge continues to, you know, linearly grow. Um, you know, a, a modern day approach or a more fluid, you know, there is this notion of, of, improve stress awareness from the practitioner. Uh, the athletes are educated on this, but it also can look like treating uh, really 
athletes who have a very uh, robust uh, job description, but training them too delicately, right? And so now we're, we're bubble wrapping our athletes. We're not exposing them to any stress. We're not loading, you know, their tissues properly. And you still end up in the same conundrum of leading an athlete to not be able to perform optimally uh, and, and being an injury risk. And so I, this is an approach that I take where a lot of my training, you know, tends to be on the, on the easier side in terms of the skill development, you know, the pattern recognition, you know, uh, sp- and spending time to correct movement patterns and make them perfect. Uh, you know, every so often I start to get into that medium realm where things are, they're starting to get challenging. Now my threshold for challenging is pretty high, just having been, you know, an athlete now for really training hard since I was 14, I'm 29 now, you know, 15 years. Um, and then every once in a while I go and see God, I go and visit, you know, Jesus Christ and, you know, get to that place where it's kind of the Andre Agassi, uh, phrase. It's like, you know, weak legs command and strong legs obey at some point as an athlete, you want your body to obey the request you're making of it, uh, over and over and over. Um, but it's this treating the nervous system respectfully notion that I, I really appreciate. I think the, the language you wrapped around there is, is beautiful because at, at some point, as an athlete, you just you cannot continue to harm yourself. You have to step out of the way and understand you were a human first. As you know, prior to being an athlete, you've you've acquired these skills from an evolutionary perspective. Like I, I don't know if like being able to repeat skating efforts and being able to make all these patterns is something that's super important, um, you know, to my longevity or you know, uh, advancing myself in the gene pool. But there are things I want to do, and so you know, it, you have to make room for the recovery. And I, I found it uh, massively helpful in as little as even two minutes when I get in my car, you know, it's quiet, it's dark before I even, you know, maybe I got the air conditioning on, it's hot here in the summer. Um, and just two minutes of breath work or meditation can make a massive difference in the crash when I get home. And it's not always right away, but I it's that like two to four hour window after the bout of exercise that, if I'm training in the morning, for example, and I do not do some of these parasympathetic recovery uh, tools, if I don't reach into my bag, that 4 p.m. marker, if I'm ending my workout around noon, is is brutal for me. The brain fog, uh, the energy crash, just the executive function, inability to schedule or, you know, simple functions become really difficult. Yeah, I, I hear that quite often. And I also think about um, the awareness piece of things as probably being the primary part of that. So when you're absolutely you know, pushing it to seeing God, as you said, like, what does that feel like? And can you translate that information? And um, when you feel that way, how, how do you bring yourself back down? What, what feels good so that it doesn't burn out your entire week? It doesn't burn out the rest of your day. You're not over um, extending yourself in all aspects of what you're doing. And not that we always get control over these types of situations, but something along the lines of you're going to see God, maybe the rest of that day is, um, you know, no really difficult conversations with partners or no, you know what I mean? Like respecting that. I asked my wife every, every training camp, like, Hey, can we just like not fight it all this month? (laughs) Cause I got a lot going on, which is usually when I start stupid shit anyway, because I'm fritzing out and I'm concerned about my placement on the team and physically, you know, physiologically the demand's really high. Uh, so it becomes a self-fulfilling, you know, prophecy where I'm creating the problem I'm trying to avoid, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, that lifestyle management piece is, is huge. Totally. And what we've always been taught as athletes is bigger, stronger, faster, right? Like the, our upbringing and our 
I guess, era of sport has been how hard can you destroy yourself and come back from it and then do it again and then come back from it and do it again. But the more and more we see here is if you built in that recovery process, like your longevity in your career is going to be astronomically longer. So when I talk to a lot of young guys, it's like, yeah, I eat healthy. I sleep sometimes. I'm on my phone a lot, but whatever. And I'm just like, these are the little things that are just going to extend your career, you know, and, and whether you want to do them or not is totally up to you. I'll give you the information, but you know, everyone brings up the example that Gretzky ate hot dogs before every game. And I'm, I'm assuming Gretzky's like knees might hurt now. And, and he's definitely shifted into like, you know, a longevity phase from here. And I don't know a lot of his ins and outs, but when I talk about these things, there's anomalies of athletes that can get away with anything. And then there's the baseline of athletes that if you really put the foundations into work, will extend your career. You'll be able to do this pain-free longer. You'll be able to do this um, consciously longer um, and then have a life afterwards too. Well, at some point too, you, you can't outrun or, or out mentally tough your way through poor biology. Um, and, and that's always been, you know, and, and as an athlete, you know, so I've, I've played in the NHL a good chunk, you know, but I never reached star status or like, you know, totally solidified status where I wasn't checking uh, the lineup card when I'd walk in the rank. Right. And that's fine. I think it's really easy as an athlete to go, oh, you know, let's say the Mitch Marners of the world or the Austin Matthews or, you know, Jack Hughes, these really high-end caliber players. It must be nice. It must be nice to be of that ilk, to know they're on the power play, to know, um, you know, they're going to be on the team. They have a contract for years to come. And that is totally missing the point of the pressure and the expectations that they have on them. You you can have a 90-point season and lose in the first round, and it's not enough you know, cause so-and-so had a hundred points and he makes $200,000 less than you. And so there is no, the, the sport and life, uh, demands your absolute consistent best. Um, now with that said, I, I think it's very easy to, so now we're, we're introducing these different tools, right? We're, we're, we want tools both to become sympathetic. We want tools to become, you know, then parasympathetic after. So how do we build in bits of this, this personality type that approaches really demanding task with a degree of playfulness. So to allude back to the surfer, uh, you know, the, the chill surfer, you know, Cali bro sort of vibe. Um, I've played with athletes like this. I've, I've played with hockey players and it is, it is magical to see the way that they stressful things just aren't stressful for them. They're excited to play. They screwed up, but like, yeah, I've screwed up before. I didn't get burned at the stake. And there's another game tomorrow and there's this very ho-hum nature to them and coaches, it drives certain coaches nuts until it's game seven and people are starting to make poor plays, you know, from panic and they're totally calm yes. or they're able to withstand, you know, really demanding physical task, but their demeanor is in a way where it's just not as difficult for them to do difficult things. So like, how does that play in? What is that yang yin, you know, sort of dynamic? Yeah, it's super interesting to me and I, I assume... Some are born with it and some aren't, or it might be like um, a conditioned response to you based on childhood and the demands that were placed on you as an athlete or different coaches that you've had. And perhaps one of the initial steps would be like, what is this belief system that you have around performance and really breaking that down a little bit more too. So as you had said, these guys screw up and they're not, they've taken past experience and applied it to current experience where they weren't burned at the stake, nothing horrific happen to them so they learn from that and accept that as truth whereas there's other athletes that accept that failure is not an option and they've tied a lot of their worth to 
absolute max performance and showing up 100% all the time. So if you tie your worth to that, a lot of people's worth is around uh, love and acceptance, right, in the world. So if you're tying like love and acceptance to performance, that gets complicated. And this belief system that you have about yourself as an athlete is solely marked on perfectionism because every time you screw up, it's going to sit so much harder. Every time you make a mistake, it's going to freeze you every time. And it's all based on this like dysfunctional narrative, right? Like no one can be perfect every day. No one can show up hundred percent all of the time. It's literally impossible. So you set yourself up for failure a little bit as an athlete. And I don't have tons of skills as a performance, like psych coach or anything like that. But when you hear the, the conversation time and time again of, you know, breaking that down a little bit more, it's super interesting that there's a competitive theme to it all. And there's a um, repetitive theme to it all too, of how uh, we perceive ourselves as athletes and, and what that looks like. And not even just athletes, like how this transcends everything that you do. So if perfectionism and never screwing up is tied to worth, and then it's tied to your acceptance in the world, you can see how dysfunctional patterns could get that would always keep you in this fight or flight state because it's stressful to screw up because then you're no longer loved and accepted. And I know we're talking athletes, so it gets a little woo to get into some of the woodwork there. But I think, you know, it's so important to kind of open up these conversations too and talk about the the mental health side of all of this, because it's, it's why we do what we do. It's our pattern recognition. It's our, you know, self-talk and narrative that we believe about the world and ourselves and athletes and performance, you know? Well, at the end of the day, when we're performing, when we're training, what we're, we're trying to do is uh, provide a sense of safety for ourselves as athletes. We're trying to expose ourselves to stress so that at a later date, I can be exposed to the needed stress and you know be re- able to recover, perform as needed. A, a term you hear a lot with ice time with coaches is, oh, I, I trust this player, right? I, I, tr- I trust them. So I, I'm able to put them on the ice. What that means is the coach's stomach, their gut, when you're on the ice, legitimately feels more safe than with other players. So a lot of it comes down to as human beings, we want to feel safe. That's kind of like our, our, our floor and the ceiling might be love. That would be really nice if we can feel that. Um, and I mean, I can relate. There was a lot of positive reinforcement when I did well at home at the rink. This was a thing. We talked about it. I was hugged. Connor, great job. Um, and there were some hard conversations had when I struggled, when effort wasn't there and that this is some of the trouble I feel like I've had as an athlete is a lot of my, you know, mental, emotional patterns are deeply ingrained. Like th- this was age six, seven, nine, 12, that this was going on all the way through, you know, puberty and on. And I never was able to like kind of go to mental, emotional, like hockey school at some date, like a, you know, let's say a high-end student, eventually they go to medical school and they kind of graduate. They, they now know that they've you know, metamorphosize into something else. It's they're now, now it's time for them to behave as a doctor. And we have this long, you know, schooling pattern and doctrine to, to help shepherd, you know, talented minds into this, you know, particularly stressful niche. And, um, something that's been really helpful for me. And I don't know if you relate to this is I did a breathwork session recently and I just, I couldn't believe how open my heart space was. And because our whole goal here is to make really difficult things reflexively easy. That's what elite performance is, right? And so even considering this podcast, I'd, I'd, in my mind, I'd had a plan. I'd, I'd had this concept of who I want to invite for this summer capsule. Uh, you know, opportunities getting away from me. I want to touch base with A, B, and C companies and brands, you know, to, to align, to, to tell the story. 
Um, and something that really came forward in the, in the breath work was, oh my God, like I, I've been so up in my head. Like there was so much vibration in my head that quieted. And I was able to like take the elevator down and just, there was just such a clarity in just doing the next good thing without pressure, without force, uh, to the point where I was, I was very much pulled into taking the very action I've been trying to grit my way through in a, in a different you know, headspace and really nervous system state. Yeah. And I find like, there's so many instances like that. So if, if that breathwork session brought it down for you, I mean, in research, we see breathwork, depending on what type you do time and time again, can take you or shift your nervous system response. And what I would say is like, what it can do is give you more autonomy over the nervous system response, which we all assume is autonomic because it's our autonomic nervous system. But if you could gain a bit more control and, and pick and choose when um, the escalation of the response happens or the de-escalation of the response happens, then that, then that builds autonomy over it. And you're right. If everything that we're trying to do is build resilience in the sport and, and just going back to that example of like natural parasympathetic versus sympathetic athletes, like just because you're sympathetic all the time and maybe have this preconceived notion of perfectionism and all that sort of stuff, there's, there's tools, as you had said, that can help mitigate that or at least bring awareness to it so you know why you're doing what you're doing and some of the stuff that i've been looking at a lot lately would be that co2 tolerance um and building resilience within the breath work so uh, the theory there is if you can um elongate your exhalation um then you gain more control over your nervous system response you build resilience within um what you're doing because it's hard. Our, the whole reason we breathe, a lot of people think is to get oxygen in, but it's actually to get CO2 out. So as CO2 builds up, it changes the pH of our blood, changes the pH of our blood, sends a signal to our brain to exhale to get oxygen out. And if you think about anyone that's stressed, they sigh. If you think about anyone who has anxiety, they're almost like hyperventilating to get more CO2 out of the system. So there's inherent mechanisms built in, but if you sat with more CO2 in your body without freaking out or without having to do something about it, then potentially we could build more resilience um, throughout the day and then gain more autonomy over that nervous system response. So however you do it, people call it box breathing, people call it X, Y, and Z, the whole goal is to be able to sit with CO2 a little bit longer, you know? I, I do. I'll be doing something after this podcast because I, I always do feel just from the exhaling, the, the constant talking, the CO2 depletion, there is a, a brain fog and a fatigue that sets in. And then who's ever spent, you know, uh, if you spend a lot of time on the phone at work, you understand this feeling. You didn't necessarily do anything super physically demanding in a day, but you're just beat at the end of it. Uh, or a long phone call that was high pace, you know, maybe it was a, a friend you're excited about. Um, what are some, do you have any quick, so, so box breathing, just to review is where all four sides of the breath uh, are the same length. So a, a box breath might be a four in count, a four hold, a four exhale, and an additional four hold, you know, kind of forming uh, four sides of the box. Um, are there some other CO2 tolerance uh, training mechanisms that you enjoy using? And is this something you're playing with on uh, independent of training, prior to training, uh, post training, or is it not? super timing specific. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, I recently did a podcast with Brian McKenzie from shift and he is heavily into this. And I learned a lot from that podcast for the why of it, which was really helpful for me. I knew it was, you know, in the research and I knew literature was showing benefit there. So his, uh, website shift has intro to breath work. Um, and 
it, it takes you through. So he shows you a video of how to get your baseline CO2 tolerance, and then it makes recommendations right on the, the website to start uh, incorporating breath work. Um, so I think that that one would be a great place to start. Honestly, the most I've learned through practice is like whatever somebody will do. So if it's not ideal and not the perfect plan, but they're committed to do it, then that's the win there. So, you know, presenting people with a bunch of different options and whatever they resonate with and whatever they'll actually incorporate into habit seems to be super important. Um, and then one of the other sides of this is like even knowing that there's some sort of level of dysfunction there. So oftentimes for a lot of athletes, it's like, yeah, I take my supplements. Yeah, I eat the food. Yeah. And then when we're asking this like very specific performance question or when I ask a lot of questions, it's like, well, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Or I don't know why I feel that way. Or I don't know what's going on there. Or I don't know why, you know, mid-season I crash or all these types of things. So, you know, starting to ask the right questions with your practitioner, a very curious practitioner who is trying to, you know, forefront always focus on performance management might be interesting to have in your corner or a therapist or somebody that's really like redlining you on the mental health side of things too to see why we do what we do and this is probably better in off season than in season definitely um but continually push you mentally and physically as an athlete i think really will get to those maximum performance gains so if you're looking for just tying in breath work, amazing. Shift is a great place to start. But if you're really looking to control your nervous system and why we do what we do, I think the awareness piece of things is huge. And, and having somebody that can start to stir up some of those thoughts is, is really important. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, another one I'd like to do is I've done it in the car where I'll just kind of like uh, either ask Siri to set a timer or whatever while I'm driving. Nothing crazy, but uh, like a minimal breathing pattern where my, the, the hairs in my nose uh, won't feel the air coming in or out, ideally. Um, that's a good CO2 tolerance one that I've played with. I follow uh, Johnny Oduya with Atunia Performance, uh, ex-Blackhawk, played in the NHL forever. I'm actually planning to have him on the podcast here in a little bit. I know he does um, some CO2 uh, tolerance on his uh, platform. I think one of them was like to do a, a five-second uh, inhale, a 10-second hold, a 10 second exhale and then that same inhale five, a same hold 10. And then you try to do like 15 seconds on the exhale and you kind of do this pyramid 20 seconds on the exhale, you know, as, as long as you can. So I, again, I, I really echo what Dr. Koch said. And at some point it all works well enough. Um, there's a, a conversation to be had maybe around optimal once the habit is downloaded, uh, and you feel, or I feel anyone listening to this feels that, uh, results are stagnating, um, you know, then, then maybe you can be more curious with, with what type um, of training you're using. Breath work is one thing. There's so many supplements that we can add in. There's so many mindfulness practices and techniques that you can start to incorporate. Uh, one thing I love for like the hyper-driven um, sympathetic dominant athlete would be something as easy as L-theanine before a game, something just like you know, give you the caffeine buzz without the jitters. Just there's so much, so many tools that we have, but if we think about, and I could talk all podcast about different interventions and why they would be beneficial. But when I really think about practice these days, and when I really think about like connecting with an athlete, it's like, well, breath work is free. Not that always financial constraints have anything to do with anything, but the most powerful thing that you could do is not having to take, you know, external, thing to make you feel some sort of way it's more so you're creating this environment you're creating these habits you're creating this foundational lifestyle that really is conducive to performance management versus 
one of the best examples that I have is so many people ask about pre-workout and I'm like, if you need pre-workout to get through your workout, there's a problem there, right? There's something that's amiss. And if you're using it to maximize that workout and try to get like a couple extra reps or really focus on a strength piece of things, then that's very different than I can't do this workout unless I had pre-workout in my body, you know? So really tuning into, um, these aspects foundationally that we have to get a hold of versus, you know, putting a large supplemental or medical bandaid on things, I think, uh, is really important. And I get it. What we're asking a lot of athletes to do is not conducive to overall health and wellness all of the time. So sometimes these band-aids are extremely important, but, um, if you're taking all of these band-aids without any consideration for the foundations, then we miss the boat, right? So let's talk about that. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about, uh, performance and longevity. How do these two you know, clash, where do they, where are they friends? And, and when you say that this is a preferred talking point, cause we had emailed prior uh, to podcasting today, are you referring more to longevity of career or longevity of the athletes well-being and, and life at large or, or I guess all three? Yeah, probably the, the second, well, I mean, maybe both uh, in everything that you're talking about. So longevity and career, again, foundational management, uh, nervous system response, injury prevention, all plays into what I would do. And then also I see like this huge translation between, you know, retiring from your career and a complete like shift in who you are. So I talked to a lot of athletes about who are transitioning and and there seems to be a huge gap in um, understanding that transition. So your entire life, you're told when to show up at the rink, what to do in training, what to eat, when your food is coming, where your hotels are at. And and I see a huge issue with this um, stopping of sport because the routine is gone, the habits that you've formed are gone, the um, goals and demands that you've put on yourself for specific reasons are have, you know, dissolved or they're not there anymore of the same context or same respect. So, you know, a lot of those older athletes, we see, you know, the weight being put on, we see the beers going back, we see the inflammation skyrocket and it. And the main people think, the main thing a lot of these athletes say is like, I used to be so athletic, I used to be able to do anything. And you're like, well, what? What's the translation there? What happened? So I think, you know, um, past longevity in the sport, we really have to consider human longevity for athletes as well. And when I also speak to that, I think there's an intersecting line between, you know, maximal human performance and longevity. At some point, we're going to meet on a map where one starts to eat away at the other. So if we're thinking strictly longevity, you're probably not going to hit, you know, maximum red line or your maximum performance ability. And if we think about, you know, maximizing performance and probably deteriorating for the body and longevity then gets a little bit amiss. So, you know, meeting the athlete where they're at and really asking goals and what they're trying to get after uh, is really important. And for people who have retired into that longevity space, if you're still training for maximal performance, we're missing the boat there too. So really understanding the athlete and what they're asking for, whether it be retired or not, I think is, is really huge conversations that have to be had and then huge mindset shifts too. So if we're asking, you know, a pro athlete who has always optimized maximal performance. And now we're like, Hey, gear back, just chill in the gym. You're looking for strength and stability and mobility now. Like those are, those are some tough reckoning points, right? They are, they are. And, um, I mean, I mean, I've wrestled it even as, as a current athlete and there's, there's a, a phrase that says, you know, the, the moment as an athlete you even consider or acknowledge that retirement's a fact, you know, part of you does. And, and there is this, um, that is the conversation every day you wake up. How do we prolong this career? How do you prolong the, prolong this career? How do you prolong this career? While I think that's an important question, the obvious answer that you know no one's uh, bringing up thereafter is 
there is no failure in your career ending. Like that is a fact as much as, as much as death is, as much as taxes are, uh, you, you will meet this day. And so there's this, there's this inevitable, you know, I'm in the, the, let's call it the back nine of my career. This will be my 11th year. I don't know if I'm going to play 22. So maybe, you know, maybe we're at the halfway point. Um, and it really is, uh, you're, you're trying to hold off the, this inevitable and, and you feel like you're marching toward this, this failure point. And it's not, I'm not positive that that gets the whole picture. And the, and the other side that I find really interesting and kind of a tease for a, a future uh, podcast here is um, I'm going to be talking with some people in the concussion and neurological wellness space. And part of the gig, you deal with MMA athletes, I'm a professional hockey player. Some of the brain trauma does interrupt this ability to uh, manage the executive function uh, part of our brain. And so it's like, this brings us always full circle to the lifestyle factors of how can you manage, you know, neural inflammation? How can you uh, continue to increase the size of your stress tank of sort? Uh, how can you continue to make more robust the tools you use to, you know, when that stress tank is overflowing to, to manage that scenario and get back to baseline? Um, it really is this never ending loop of, performance, longevity, how do we balance the two? How to enjoy what I'm doing today? How do I continue to get better tomorrow? Uh, today went well. How do I help that do, uh, you know, be the case again? I struggled today. How do I avoid that in the future? And what led to that? Um, you know, these are the foundational questions that they're just, they're not going anywhere. Yes. And this makes me think a lot of, you know, um, <clears throat> coming back to having a co- co- like a I don't know what you would even call them. I don't know if coach is the right word because coach is so associated with like the, the team coach, but somebody who's in your corner to help filter some of these ideas, who is very knowledgeable in the health and wellness field, I think is really important for athletes. And there's so much on social media. This next big supplement is going to be the absolute performance game changer, doing this, doing that. And you're just bombarded with all of this information. So even when we started talking, like the amount of supplements and regimes that you had, it was just very interesting to me to be like that in itself sounds a bit exhausting. And we've had some of those conversations too. So um, I get it. I get those super cool stuff on the market. I get the value in trying things because maybe it will be that like performance maker. Maybe it will be that 1% thing that actually makes you feel really good. But um, I think having somebody to filter some of these thoughts as an athlete and be like, is this legit? Is this a real thing? Is, is super helpful because um, if not, it's, you're just going to end up on a million different things and potentially, you know, harming performance in some instances, if you're taking too much stuff or contraindicated stuff or, or uh, things that mix with other things. So um, I really value the conversations we have and it's super insightful for me, for somebody who's so interested in the performance spectrum and health and wellness and alternatives that, you know, we get to break down some of this stuff too, right? Yeah. And what I find with our relationship and, and there's other figures like yourself in my life, it, it really is the, the space and, and you're able to play a, a mirror role where you're able to reflect back, you know, where's my headspace at? What, you know, where am I uh, bringing things up? What problems am I creating, you know, for myself? Uh, what false stories have you been told? Like as an athlete, a lot of times, you know, I, I've been here where, uh, you know, if, if stress tolerance is the model and the nervous system will uh, adjust to whatever stress you will place uh, you know, it through, it really does lead you down this training path of like, I am just going to throw, throw absolute mud at my nervous system. I'm going to make this training as hellish as possible. And I'm going to emerge this monster uh, on the other side of it. And like, that's just not the way the human body responds sustainably 
over time and you're, you're going to have a law of diminishing returns. And I don't know, you, you play this role for me from a uh, health and wellness uh, perspective. Uh, we've talked a little bit offline about, you know, the strength work I'm doing and, and the role that that gentleman has had. I've had different uh, skilled practitioners that I've used and, and not even skilled practitioners, but like game management advisors, I guess, that help me reassess the concepts of what is it I do on the ice? What is it I do uniquely that markets me uh, to people? What are they buying when they sign Connor Carrick? Uh, and what are some of the non-negotiables just within the structure of today's game uh, that needs to happen. And so I, I think it's really important as an athlete to have advisors and have different spaces you can go to um, for the different realms of of performance. Uh, I have certain spaces that I find helpful, for example, for my breath work, my meditative work, uh, you know, video watching, whatever. They're different than the gym I go to and it, what that environment you know, needs to have, um, for me to have access to what I'm looking for. Definitely. And I think separating those in your brain is really important. And I also kind of like think about these things too, in a context of there's already so much bombarding that athlete and this feels like a whole other ball game to take on. And then are we, you know, putting another drip in the stress tolerance bucket. So it's, it's always so interesting to ask the athlete, like what they actually want. And I've had athletes, you know, at the professional level, sit in that chair and be like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be a real estate agent or I want to, you know, spend more time with my kids. And and those are the most fascinating things to me because you, you think at the upper echelon or the top elite level that like they're in it to win it and that's all that they care about. And, and so you can imagine the amount of stress on that athlete when you're living a life that you're not actually into anymore either, but the preconceived stressors around you and, and societal expectations of you are so weighing you down. So, you know, that honesty and transparency is key because how could we ever hit maximum performance if you don't even like what you're doing, you know? Um, so somebody that you trust and separating the, those thought processes out is, is, I think, so helpful for an athlete. And, and maybe one day you'll want to be a real estate agent and the next day you'll come back and be like, nope, just kidding. I want to do this. And, and that mirroring effect, I think, is, is what's really helpful in, in any sort of practitioner supporting athletes as well. Well, and for athletes that are having a difficult relationship with their sport and, and their talent and they're in a dark place, because I've been there. And I think what I recognized was I, I didn't necessarily want to stop playing the sport. I, I wanted to stop my relationship with the sport as it was operating currently. I, I wanted to play better. I wanted to feel better about the possibility of being able to play better and, and be able to better weather uh, the difficult moments. And so it, it wasn't necessarily, it, it was a fight or flight response, literally. And, and and I was in this flight sort of space where it was like, you know, maybe I'm meant to do other things. Maybe, you know, my game's uh, better elsewhere. And, and it is incredibly empowering when you're able to chew on that and reorganize and come back the next day, totally congruent, totally aligned and, and actually knowing and excited for uh, the opportunity and the difficulty that lies within it. That's a, 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 you cannot beat an athlete in that space. They, they become this hurricane forever over warm water um, where it seems like success and failure both fuel them. And, and it's, it's the stoic principle of, you know, amor fati. Like you, you are, you become unstoppable this way. 
And perhaps like during the off season is something some athletes start to consider. Like, you know, I can put my head down and do really hard things for a really long time. But when we talk about that longevity in the sport and longevity after the sport too, maybe allocating a little bit of time um, in your off season towards some of this stuff would be pretty influential too. I think Tim Ferriss has a great question. Um, I was writing it down, but he asks himself like, where am I making this harder? And as an athlete, you know, really go through your life and your time and your energy and consider like, what are the different pebbles in my shoe? Uh, that, that, that feels like adversity and really you just need to do some food prep that feels like adversity, but really you just need to spend less time on your phone. That feels like adversity, but like you really need to stop binge drinking on the weekend. And, and, uh, you, you really are able to put some, some power in your corner that way. Um, when you understand the, power of momentum and uh, are able to get your biology and your physiology on your side to begin to look for opportunity. Yeah, I would agree a thousand percent. And, um, you know, speaking about all of this, like stress always gets such a bad rap. And and of course, you're going to be stressed. You're a professional athlete playing X amount of games throughout the season. And we're putting you in very precarious, you know, situations that you have to thrive under. And um, when I perceive stress, it's more so like, you know, that cortisol response is, you know, what wakes you up in the morning. It's the thing that gives you a blood sugar response. So you can, you know, get the right fuel to your body. And there's so many positive aspects of stress. So maybe finding words that resonate more a little bit instead of saying like, I'm so stressed or this is so stressful. Like what is something that, you know, annotates a, a positive spin on the the situation that you're into and, and language we know through the literature is so powerful throughout the year. So when, when stuff gets heavy mid season and the, you know, the over or under recovery starts to hit a little bit harder, like what are these phrases and terms that you've already delineated and already came up with that are, you know, the game changing pivotal points for you to start seeing this for what it is. Um, and you have so much resilience built already that, um, as you had said, these things don't feel as hard. You're able to do hard things. And, you know, that's part of pushing yourself to those red lines. But again, push, pushing yourself to the mental red lines too is is part of this as well. Do you have uh, any words that you like to remind athletes of in their approach that tends to resonate? And I guess I'll, I'll share a few. Like uh, one of the things that I'm I'm really interested in is performance at the highest level that while they're working hard, it, it is, is reflexive for them. And so they've, they've efforted enough that they've, they've ascended this efforting, you know, sort of uh, mechanism, you know, Patrick Kane isn't trying that hard to handle the puck that well, Patrice Bergeron, you know, while he, you know, works really hard, uh, you, you know, to maintain his craft, it's, it's no longer become that difficult for him to actually stay in position and, and do his angling uh, as he so does. And, and so it's like, at some point, you need to bring an, a, a degree of grace into trying to do really difficult things. You cannot grip and force. And so, you know, one of the f- things I write on my stick is I write the fr- uh, 10%. And I had a coach say, you know, don't go 90% of the way. And so it really helped me as a, as a player have this all-in sort of notion uh, to my game to finish plays. Another thing was... Um, he was discussing you, you attached to certain plays too long. Like I need you on to the next play. So I wrote, you know, NP for 
next play. And that really helps like recenter me shift to shift. You know, what whatever happened last shift is last shift. There's another one coming all the way to practice is over. You know, what's the next play now? And and to think very short term and to think very small uh, against this, you know, huge mountain that is climbing up, you know, an entire regular season schedule. Yeah, I think the two things that I love about the things that resonate with you would be the neutrality of them. Like it, it has nothing tied to like, forget about it, on to the next, you're great. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, that toxic positivity or like the faking it part of things um, is really dysfunctional. Like I'm supposed to feel some sort of way and I don't. So I think the key word that I like to use for athletes when they're developing these transitional sayings would be something in the words of neutrality. As long as it doesn't make you feel some strong emotion one way or another, like, you know, our tendency is to get frustrated and angry and be like, that was bullshit play or like you screwed that up or whatever. And, and where does that take your headspace? Nowhere good, right? Even the people that get fueled for negative energy, it's a dysfunctional fuel. You know, it's it's not, and not that it has to be super positive either. You don't have to be like, hey, you'll get them next time. Everything's great. Maybe just something very neutral of being like, you know, that didn't go the way you want it to go, but that's okay and not have any emotions attached to it. So, you know, the words that you pick to, to resonate with you seem to do that next play. Like it doesn't have any connotation towards like that was brutal or that was great. It's just like, okay, next. Um, which I think is really important, almost like a stoic approach to a lot of the things that we're doing in, in performance management. I like, um, yeah, that's kind of where I bring a lot of people. Do I always know if it's the most helpful? No, but that's, that's usually my headspace around things. Well, there's this, uh, there's this, there's this Buddhist story where a, a student is kind of approaching the master and he's like, you know, what is, what is enlightenment? You know, yeah. He asks his, his, uh, you know, Zen master and the, the Zen master asks him, you know, did you eat rice today? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I had rice this morning. And the Zen master goes, well, then wash your bowl. And that's his answer for what enlightenment, you know, really is. And, and that, it's this sort of stoic, uh, you know, Zen philosophy that helps me understand the nature of my effort, the nature to express my desire to be better. And it, and it kind of helps me understand that success and failure are like two sides of the very same coin um, and, and bringing me back down to reality. So another concept I'd, I'd like to challenge the athlete listening to on is uh, there's been times in my career, either in hockey or in golf, golf's a classic, right? I mean, you golf cokes where someone will come off the course and they'll shoot one of their best scores of the summer uh, or they'll play their best game and they'll go, that was me. That was my game today. I was on today, right? And and the, the, the counter argument is they'll have a bad game and they'll say, oh, I, I just didn't have it. That wasn't me today. And the, the answer kind of lies in between in that you are both the sum of your best and worst performance. Like you do not get to uh, cling to your best performances and say that is my true essence. And you do not get to uh, disown your poor performances um, and, and pretend like, you know, no one's going to watch it. And uh, you, you need to understand that. And this is especially true in pro, pro hockey. Like what teams are really evaluating most often is your B game because there's 76 games. You, you're going to play almost all of them after traveling, uh, or, or, you know, having played, you know, very recently compared to, to when that game is, is airing. And so it is a, a bunch of B games going out every night where of course they're trying their best, but it's just in suboptimal sort of conditions. Uh, and the goal is to stretch that and understand 
your capabilities and not overreach and do something that you're not out there. Um, and you're just, you're not able to live at the ends of your bell curve or your performance all the time. Definitely. I really like that realistic expectations of performance too. Like, you know, if you're mid season and you have, you know, three back to back games and travel in between and like, what, what is not minimum effective dose? Like what is a realistic expectation for your body that night? Uh, you know, should you play more defensively? Should you consider X, Y, and Z and, and plan that accordingly and plan uh, your headspace around that? And um, all of these things we talk about, like there's a million things we can do for circadian rhythm. There's a million things we can do when you get on the plane to make sure we mitigate as much uh, impact as possible. But these narratives that we carry with us on a, on a continual basis are really the foundational change that we could start to make to improve performance. And um I mean, you and I talk about some super cool stuff and like some testing that we're doing and supplementation that's advantageous and, and that sort of thing. But I think it's because we've, we've got past or you've already, you know, got past a lot of the headspace stuff. And, and I'm sure there's ebbs and flows to that annually, but for the most part, you're quite aware of, of the inputs coming in. So now we get to play with some of the fun stuff, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. And, and it wasn't always that way. I think in a lot of ways I was trying to backdoor working on my headspace and, and mental well-being through these very, you know, physical inputs without really, um, considering like, I, like I thought, I'll give you an example. Like I, I thought I was kind of this, uh, you know, special snowflake where I had to outwork everyone. And it's like, okay, if that is your, your true belief, like what, what is your fear? Your fear is that, you know, maybe you're not as naturally gifted or you, you couldn't rely on, um, just showing up as a player, like you, you have to have all these like secret weapons on your side. Why? And, and something I've done is like, okay, remove all them. Don't take any of the supplements. Just eat normally like everybody else. Like, did your game go to complete shit? Well, no, it's like, it doesn't mean don't do them. It just means you don't, you might not need them the way you think you do. Um, and just be realistic about, you know, where their, uh, capabilities begin and end. They're not, they're not going to, uh, you know, do something for you that you need to do yourself. Yep, definitely. I love, I love that. That's, and like, yeah, test these theories that you have about yourself. And and again, probably in the off season in case it does derail you for a game or two, but um, all of these adjuncts that we have are super cool. And when we look at, you know, the literature for a lot of them, there's wicked attributes of creatine. There's amazing things that beta alanine can do. Magnesium is a magical product that most of us are deficient in. So again, I could, you know, write home about all of the things that we have in our toolbox. But um, as you had said, it's just like, are we putting these on a pedestal in comparison to what actually has to be worked on? Are we shying away from working on a lot of these things by putting these big band-aids like pre-workout on things, you know? I do. I do. Well, Cokes, I, uh, I think we covered a lot of ground today. I really appreciate it. And we'll have to have you back on when those test results do come in and we can do a little bit of a live reading. I'm, I'm still waiting on those. So, um, where can people continue to find you? I know you have your own podcast, you're on Instagram. You're pretty active there uh, for athletes. I want to get in touch. Definitely. So most of my content would be at sports.cokes on social media. Um, and then the podcast that I have is the off season podcast. So definitely check that out. Connor has his uh, episode on there too. You'll have to listen to that one. Um, but yeah, I post a bunch of information. Hopefully some of it resonates with people. And then I'm an open book if you ever want to send a, a message and ask some questions. Very cool. Very cool. I appreciate your time today, Cokes. Thanks for having me, bud. <laughs>